We all know there's been a slow-moving coup engineered by Donald Trump. It hasn't worked yet. And there was a coup that actually did work in the United States in 1944. Stay tuned. We're going to tell you about it. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. Prosperity for the few. The rights of U.S. corporations to extract from the land of Central America and exploit the people of Central America. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. And it is quite a dream to keep democracy alive. And it hasn't always worked as well as it should. Sometimes democracy has been sabotaged. Yes, there was a coup, really, literally a coup, back in 1944, which, had it not been for that, it might have made a huge difference in politics and saved, actually, a lot of people's lives and limbs. What am I talking about? I'm talking about uh, an elected official, high elected official, with the last name of Wallace. And no, I'm not talking about George Corley Wallace, the right-wing racist Alabama governor in the 1960s. The Wallace we're talking about today couldn't be farther politically from that Wallace. Henry A. Wallace was actually vice president of these United States from 1940 until a really shocking coup at the Democratic Convention in 1944 took his name off the ticket for re-election with Franklin Delano Roosevelt. It changed his name with a little-known senator from Missouri by the name of Harry S. Truman. Of course, when Roosevelt died shortly thereafter in April 1945, Truman became president and the Cold War began in earnest. Well, I'm very pleased to have with us on Keeping Democracy Alive with Bert Cohen, Peter Kuznick, professor of history at American University. Thanks so much for being with us today. Glad to be with you, Bert. Well, it is quite a story, and uh, for a little more introduction, Peter Kuznick, uh, aside from being professor of history at American University in Washington, is co-author with Oliver Stone of The Untold History of the United States. And of that book, Glenn Greenwald of The Guardian termed it a counter-narrative to the enormous tide of hogwash that dominates most public discussion of America. Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Martin Sherwin calls it the most important historical narrative of this century, a carefully researched and brilliantly rendered account. Well, again, thanks for being with us, Peter. How did President Roosevelt come to appoint Henry Wallace as vice president in the first place in 1940? Why politically did Franklin Roosevelt want a real progressive on the ticket? Who was uh, Henry Wallace? In 1940. Uh, Wallace had been Roosevelt's Secretary of Agriculture throughout the New Deal. Wallace came from a very distinguished Iowa farm family. His father had been Secretary of Agriculture and the Harding and Coolidge administrations. His grandfather had founded Wallace's Farmer, the leading farm newspaper, and uh, Henry Wallace was the choice for Secretary of Agriculture, and Wallace 
using some very, very unorthodox means that he himself was appalled by to plow under 25% of the cotton crop to kill millions of baby pigs in order to reduce the supply and raise the uh, cost, raise the profit actually, restore the agricultural economy, it actually it worked tremendously. And after one year, farm income increased 30%. Many people thought that restoring agricultural income was key to solving the sure. crisis, the depression of the 1930s. And so Wallace was a brilliant secretary of agriculture. Arthur Schlesinger Jr. said that Wallace was the best secretary of agriculture this country has ever had. Mm. There's lots of evidence to support that. Wallace was also the leading progressive. He and Ickes and really were the most important progressives in the Roosevelt administration. Wallace had very close rapport with the scientific community. He was an outspoken anti-racist, mm. outspoken anti-fascist, known widely as uh, a real leader of progressive thought in America during the 1930s and was widely viewed as a likely uh, successor to Franklin Roosevelt. So when Roosevelt was looking for a vice presidential candidate in 1940, Roosevelt knew that war was imminent. He knew he'd be fighting a war against against, uh, Nazism, Mm -hmm. racism, militarism, and he wanted a real progressive on the ticket in 1940. The problem was that the party bosses didn't want Wallace on the ticket, so uh, they were resisting Roosevelt's choice of Wallace for vice president. Roosevelt wrote a remarkable letter to the Democratic Convention in 1940, in which he says the Democratic Party must champion progressive and liberal policies and principles. That the party has failed when it has fallen into control of those who think in terms of dollars instead of human values. Mm. Says until the Democratic Party shakes off all the shackles of control fastened upon it by the forces of conservatism, reaction, and appeasement, it will not continue its march to victory. The Democratic Party cannot face in both directions at the same time. Mm. Therefore, I decline the honor of the nomination for the presidency. Roosevelt was actually about to turn down the nomination of his party because he thought his party was not sufficiently liberal and progressive and principled. Eleanor Roosevelt went to the floor of the convention, the first time the wife of a nominee ever addressed the, a, a party convention, mm. and she told the delegates, she said, we now face a grave and serious situation. She says, this is no ordinary time. My, my husband is serious. Uh, and the convention begrudgingly supported Wallace on the ticket as vice president. In, uh, as vice president, Wallace was again a stalwart for progressive policies and ideas. Uh, in 1941, Henry Luce, the head of the mm-hmm. Time Life Empire, wrote that the, that the 20th century must be the American century. Right. Yeah. The United States should dominate the world economically, militarily, culturally, in all ways. Wallace, as vice president, responded to that with an extraordinary speech uh, in May of 1942, in which he repudiates Luce. He says, some have spoken of the American century. He says, I say the century that will come of this war can and must be the century of the common man. 
Yes. No nation will have the God-given right to exploit other nations. It must be neither military nor economic imperialism. He says international cartels have to go. He calls for a worldwide people's revolution in the tradition yes. of the American Revolution, the French Revolution, the Latin American Revolutions, the German Revolution of 1848, and the Russian Revolution. And he says they all spoke for the common man. Some have, been, have gone to excess, but we've been groping our way to the light slowly. He says the people's revolution is on the march. And he calls for a post-war collaboration between the Americans and the Soviets to rebuild the world. And Wallace was clearly a man of great vision, yes. a man of great principle. In 1943, he made his remarkable tour of Latin America. Uh, and he had turnouts in country after country, uh, bigger than they've ever seen in those countries. Uh, in, in Costa Rica, he starts first, and, and 65,000 people show up, 15% wow. of the nation's population Jeez. turns out to greet him. Uh, the, uh, the New York Times said it was the greatest reception in the history of Costa Rica. Yeah. Uh, 300,000 people in Chile, uh, country after country. The State Department writes back, we've never seen anything like this across Latin America. He speaks to the audiences in Spanish. The embrace is, is, is tremendous. Uh, and he comes back, and over a dozen Latin American countries had then declared war on Germany, Twenty had broke diplomatic relations with Germany, based on Wallace's visit to Latin America. Wow. He's enormously popular in the U.S. Uh, 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 Gallup did a poll in 1943 that asked that listed possible successors to Roosevelt, mm. and uh, Wallace got 57 percent favorability rating, more than double that of his nearest competitor as a successor to Roosevelt. So uh, Wallace. Uh, was uh, the, the second most popular man in the United States behind Roosevelt. Absolutely. The 1944 convention was yes. nearing. Well, the conservatives in the Democratic Party knew that Wallace was going to be back on the ticket as vice president. They also knew that Roosevelt was increasingly feeble, yes. that he was not going to last, right. survive another term as president and that whoever got nominated as vice president would be the next president of the United States. Well, we, before, before we get too far into it, there's a lot of ground to cover. And if you just yes. tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, I'm Bert Cohen. Our guest today is Peter Kuznick. We're talking about somebody who, I imagine, like 98%, maybe more, of Americans never heard of. But as you were describing uh, Vice President Henry Wallace's visit to uh, Latin America, I'm reminded of... Uh, Vice President Nixon's, <laughs> where they hated him. They threw yeah. eggs at him, and at least he realized when he talked about the, the century of the common man that we kind of needed uh, Central America and Latin America. It was in our interest to have them as our friends, and that hasn't always been the case, to put it mildly, if you look at the history of American relations with uh, the people of Latin America. I want to play a little bit of Henry Wallace speaking about those revolutions that he felt a bond with. I'm not sure, you probably know what I'm about to play. I'm not sure what year this, this was. So let me, let me play it and uh, you can describe it. The march of freedom of the past 150 years has been a long drawn out people's revolution. 
this great revolution of the people, there were the American Revolution of 1775, the French Revolution of 1792, the Latin American revolutions of the Bolivarian era, the German Revolution of 1848, the Russian Revolution of 1918. Each spoke for the common man in terms of blood on the battlefield. Some went to excess, but the significant thing is that the people broke their way to the light. The people are on the march toward even fuller freedom than the most fortunate peoples of the earth have hitherto enjoyed. I appreciate all the uh, sound effects in there, but that was <laughs> Henry Wallace uh, speaking there. And, you know, what he was talking about was the America that I was so proud of in the 1950s yeah. when we were the champion of the little guy. We were against colonialism. We were against uh, uh, feudal domination of, of peasants. And, and, and we supported the average person, and the world loved America because that's who we were. We were against imperialism, against fascism, and and he he really spoke to that. And I, I'm, a little bit of history here. Who was vice president before he was put on the ticket in 1940, and what happened to him? Um, uh, Marshall, was he, he was not uh, he was a, a, a Texas uh, a, a southerner, with pretty bad views on things, uh, John Ames Garner, and uh, he oh, was not yes. going to be John kept Ansgarner. on the ticket in 1940. Roosevelt wanted a real progressive, right at that point, because Roosevelt certainly uh, uh, was a progressive. There's no doubt about it. And the idea of that that letter that you read from Franklin Roosevelt to the delegates at the convention that was. Absolutely amazing when you when you put it in the context of uh, what the Democratic Party has become well into yeah. the twenty first century. It's, it's it's a sad commentary. Yeah, um, I mean the Democrat would be Democrats would be well advised to mm-hmm. revisit that letter that Roosevelt wrote and never sent. Uh, that it it just captured what the Democratic Party once was. Yes, and what the Democratic Party should be again. Absolutely, really forsaken. Yeah, and and really could be, and you know, to have two Republican parties out there, two corporate parties, of course, people aren't enthused about voting. We need something to get excited about, and luckily there are people out there now. And this show is coming from New Hampshire, where we have the first in the nation presidential primary, and there's a lot of push for some kind of populist take back of our government, so that it can be our government again. Mm-hmm. If you just tuned in, we're talking about uh, uh, Henry A. Wallace. Now, uh, uh, so th- they were both concerned. Both FDR and Wallace were visionaries, each in their own way. Uh, he Wallace was wanted to talk about what could contribute to real world peace. What what did uh, Roosevelt say about the power of money? specifically as it related to the Democratic Party. And I wonder where Henry Wallace fit in with regard to the power of money in the Democratic Party. Roosevelt had alienated the moneyed interests in the United States. Roosevelt said that these conservative money interests hate me. He says, I welcome their hatred. It's very different than Obama, who goes hat in hand, begging for money, 
gets to support no, big no. pharma and then sells out the health care plan, uh, repudiates campaign financing, public financing the campaign, and gets heavily yeah. uh, supported by Wall Street interests. And his policies reflect that, and he puts them in as his economic advisors all. The New York Times called them a constellation of Reubenites. Yeah. Yeah, it is a very, very different kind of attitude. The Democratic Party certainly had backing from some financial interests, but very, very few. Joseph Kennedy was one of the few big businessmen who really supported Roosevelt in the 1930s. We have another faction of the, uh, of the party who uh, apparently tried to stage a coup against Roosevelt when they approached Smedley Butler in the 1930s and asked Marine hero Smedley Butler to lead an uprising. But Butler uh, publicly exposed this. There were congressional hearings. The congressional committee said that everything that Butler claimed had been verified. And these people were the Morgans and the DuPonts and other reactionary business interests who were supporting the Republicans at the time. So uh, the Democratic Party was much more a party of the common people in the 1930s than it's become now. I can only about them. Wallace <clears throat> did not want uh, the support of these kinds of moneyed interests who were going to try to subvert their progressive policies. Uh, I, I believe uh, Franklin Roosevelt said something about uh, "I welcome their hate." <laughs> yes, that I, I welcome their hatred. Yes, he did. And you know, at, at the time of of FDR and Henry Wallace, and you know, after uh, the U.S. finally got involved in in the war against uh, the Nazis, the Soviet Union was still our ally. After Roosevelt died, they became our new enemy. Harry Truman was was eager to drop the bomb on Japan. Many speculate not to defeat the Japanese because that was happening anyway, but to show Stalin a new enemy, a new power, and to threaten Stalin and to start a new type of uh, war, Cold War. How does this differ from both Franklin Roosevelt and Wallace. What did they envision for the U.S.-Soviet Union relationship after the Nazis were defeated? I, you know, you think about the incredible expense of the Cold War and how it, it drained our economy so terribly. What was their vision of the American-Soviet relationship after the war? Well, Roosevelt was interesting on this because, I mean, Roosevelt had negotiated <laughs> the agreements at Yalta uh, and Roosevelt envisioned ongoing U.S.-Soviet friendship after the war. Roosevelt called for something that we need today. He called it the four policemen. He said after the war, the United States, the Soviet Union, China, and he said Britain would have to serve as policemen and make sure that peace and stability are maintained around the globe. I think we need something like that again, not with Britain in there, but maybe with yeah. Germany as a fourth partner in securing the peace globally. Uh, but uh, Roosevelt's final telegram that he sent to Churchill right before he died, he said, these little issues come up between the Soviets and us every day, but they go away. They get resolved. The worst mistake would be to make a big deal out of them. He says there's no reason why we can't have ongoing friendship with the Soviets and work together afterwards. Wallace was actually much more uh, committed to U.S.-Soviet yes. post-war yes. friendship and collaboration. 
after Wallace gets ousted from the ticket in 1944, which we haven't actually gotten into. Oh, yeah, we'll get there. Uh, uh, Wallace, uh, on, Roosevelt urges Wallace to remain in the cabinet. He says, you can have any position you want except for Secretary of State. He says, I don't want to break Cordell Hall's heart. So he says, take any other cabinet position you want. Right. And Wallace does the same thing that Hoover had done in 1920 when he had a similar choice of positions. Wallace chose to be Secretary of Commerce. Right. And he stays on in the cabinet for another, more than a, uh, another year after Roosevelt's death and wages the fight against Truman's Cold War policies from inside the cabinet. Finally, in September of 1946, Truman fires him. But Wallace had been the most visible proponent of peace and opposition to the start of a Cold War, also to the nuclear arms race, from inside the cabinet, uh, battling, trying to win Truman's heart and mind to convince Truman to adopt more progressive policies to understand where the Soviet Union was coming from. And I, I wonder if there, there must have been charges that that Henry Wallace may have been naive once we found out about you know Stalin's unbelievable brutality toward his people. I wonder if Wallace could have been familiar with what was really going on there. Was he naive when it came to Stalin's design on designs on uh, the uh, Eastern Hemisphere? Um, naive, yeah. I, I think it's I think it's fair to say that Henry Wallace was naive in some ways. Uh, I, I think of him more as a visionary. Mm-hmm. I think of him being more prescient and understanding. His uh, he was always critical of. Stalin's policies inside the Soviet Union. Uh-huh. There were things that he liked. He liked socialized medicine. Mm. He liked the Soviet commitment to science and technology. He liked some of the social justice ideas that were the official policy of the Soviets, not necessarily what they carried out. And he thought there was a lot of brutality there. Uh, it, what he, his vision was that the U.S. and the Soviets would compete peacefully that there would be this ongoing period of peaceful competition in which both sides would try to show what they could do to improve the lot of the rest of humanity. Right. They thought through that process that the Soviets would adopt more of the freedom and democratic principles of the United States, and the U.S. would adopt some more of the social justice vision of oh. the Soviet Union. Hmm. So he saw the two countries moving closer together. At the time in the 30s, most Americans did not yet know of Stalin's sure. atrocities. Yes. And, uh, and during the war, uh, Roosevelt made a trip to Siberia. I mean, Wallace made a trip to Siberia and w- was on a Soviet gulag that had been set up as a model farm, and he did not realize that this was all a Potemkin village. This was all a show that was being put on for him and the others. But the same thing, there were... Uh, Asia experts with him on this trip, and they didn't, under, they didn't realize that this whole thing was a show. There were U.S. generals on the trip with him. None of the military leaders realized this was a show either. So were they all naive? Were they all duped? Right. Yes. <laughs> In no. some sense, they were. Uh, but they didn't, people just did not know the extent of the horrors of Stalinism sure. at that time. And what Wallace was trying to do was to avoid the horrors of the Cold War which could have even trumped the horrors of Stalinism. Wallace's goal was to avoid a nuclear arms race, 
was to avoid a nuclear war and the threat of annihilation, to avoid the Cold War, to have peaceful competition and a peaceful world after, instead of the kind of world that develops after 1946. And I'm reminded even JFK, no raging liberal progressive, uh, said that where uh, uh, peaceful change uh, isn't allowed to happen, then violent revolution will be inevitable. So it kind of fits in with that, that if we, and, and, and JFK, for all his faults, uh, had the Alliance for Progress and, and showed respect to the developing world. And I suspect uh, that would have made a lot more sense to continue with that policy. And In many ways, JFK was a successor to Wallace. But not JFK in the 1950s or JFK in the first two years of his administration, but JFK in the last year of his administration, post-Cuban Missile Crisis, JFK had dramatically changed his his views on a lot of things and was talking about pulling the U.S. out of Vietnam. He was talking about ending the space race and having collaboration together with the Soviets. Mm. He was talking about ending the Cold War. uh, JFK's... Last year in office was a very, very different JFK than the first two years in office. And it does seem that perhaps he offended certain powerful interests who didn't want JFK there anymore. There was a movie. A lot of the same enemies (laughs) that Henry Wallace had. Interesting. And and, uh, the enemies succeeded in taking Wallace down. Yes. They might have also succeeded in taking Kennedy down. They certainly had motivation to do so. Whether or not yes. they did it, they had a lot of motivation to do so. All right, now we got to get to the piece de résistance. 1944, uh, among the most fascinating aspects of the Henry Wallace story, which is an amazing story that practically nobody knows, is what happened at the 1944 Democratic Convention. Who were the party bosses? Who was Pendergast? Who, why were they so intent on removing Wallace despite Franklin Roosevelt's strong support for keeping him on the ticket. What was their motivation, and who were they? Tell us about Pendergast, for example. Well, Pendergast ran the uh, Democratic machine in Kansas City. It was one of the corrupt urban machines. Much of the country saw this, the Tammany Hall machine, Mm -hmm. the the various uh, machines that that ran, ran the cities, were full of patronage, were very corrupt, often carried out illegal activities, and Pendergast was one of the most powerful of all. So he ran the Kansas City machine. Uh, One of the members of that machine was a relatively unknown individual, Harry S. Truman, who Pendergast picked up after World War I. Uh, Truman uh, Truman had, had a tough childhood. I mean, he was not a very successful young man, never really succeeded in anything until he served in World War I, came back from the war having served well, not a war hero by any means, but had acquitted himself well and got picked up by the Pendergast machine. Uh, He was a a, a low-level operative in the Pendergast machine, building roads and courthouses, the usual, Mm -hmm. and was getting passed over for any higher kind of recognition. He had hoped that Pendergast was going to run him for the Congress. Uh, So it's 1930. Uh, what year would that have been? When, some some uh, even-numbered year. 30, 34, I think it was. And uh, it was uh, 33, 33. And while and Truman was about to drop out of the party machine, was going to go back to the farm, back to his family farm, and give up politics. 
and Pendergast met him with his uh, Lieutenant Aylesworth in Sedonia, Missouri, and, and, and Truman was about to tell him that he was going to leave the machine. It was Truman's 50th birthday that day, actually. It was, it was 34, and, uh, and uh, Pendergast says to him, uh, don't, we've got big plans, we want to run you for the Senate. Truman says, run me for the Senate. What do I know about the issues about the world? I can build roads. Uh, and, and Pendergast says, don't worry. Uh, we'll give you advisors who will tell you what to do, and we'll get you elected to the Senate. Truman didn't know that Pendergast's first four people he approached for that had turned him down. So Truman was his fourth, his fifth choice on that. And uh, when he was later asked by the Kansas City Star... Uh, why they chose Harry Truman, of all people, to run for the Senate, Pendergast said, I wanted to show the world that a well-oiled machine could take a petty clerk and get him elected to the Senate. So Truman was not a big person, not a well-known person when he got elected to the Senate in 1934. The other senators shunned him. They called him the senator from Pendergast. They thought he was a corrupt party hack. In reality, Truman was one of the most honest, if not the most honest, member of the Pendergast machine. And uh, was was more than 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 a hack, but he had very little national reputation in his first term as Senate. When he was running for re-election in 1940, Roosevelt refused to back him. Mm. Pendergast couldn't back him because Pendergast was in federal prison in Kansas City, <laughs> and so Truman was running third in the election. Out of desperation, at the last minute, he turned to another political machine, the Hannigan-Dickman machine that ran St. Louis. And they threw their backing to him, and he barely eked out a re-election victory in 1940. In 19, during his second term in the Senate, he acquitted himself much better. He was not a star by any means, but he ran an investigation of the defense sector, uh, rooted, found some corruption there. It was not a, the, the, the best investigation, but at least got him some headlines and national attention. So when the party bosses decided in 1944, now this, by this point, the party bosses are people like uh, Mayor Kelly of Chicago, Haig of Jersey City, uh, Walker, uh, but the two most important were Hannigan, who had run the St. Louis machine, who Truman helped get appointed national chairman of the Democratic Party, uh. and Edwin Pauley. Uh, Pauley talked about the ouster of Wallace, he proudly called it Pauley's coup. He claimed credit for ousting Wallace. Pauley was the treasurer of the Democratic Party. He said that he entered politics. He's a California oil millionaire who said that I entered politics when I realized it was cheaper to elect a new Congress than to buy up the old one. Yeah. He later gets indicted also. This is a very corrupt crew. I guess. And they're very conservative. And they know that if Wallace... Uh, gets on there, then his Wallace was going to make some very, very radical changes. And he didn't like the Wall Street types. In fact, Wallace decried America's fascists. He said, America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. Wow. Now we call them Democrats and Republicans. Yes. <laughs> uh, but Wallace called them America's fascists. So clearly Wallace had enemies. His enemies included the Southern segregationists, because yes. Wallace was the leading spokesperson for black civil rights in the Democratic Party. They included the anti-feminists, because Wallace was a leading spokesperson for women's rights in the Democratic Party. They included the British and the French, 
because Wallace was the most outspoken opponent of colonialism and imperialism, which he said have to end. Yes. Global exploitation has to end. Uh, he was the mm. um, he was opposed by the business interests because he was the leading spokesperson for labor at that to- at that point in the Democratic Party. So he, he's got the racists, he's got the imperialists, he's got uh, the business interests, uh, the the segregationists, the, the anti-feminists, uh, the, the anti-labor people. They they all hate Wallace and, and want to get him ousted. The uh, British had been putting pressure on Roosevelt to get Wallace off the ticket. They had been spying on Wallace. In fact, it was Roald Dahl, the famous writer, who was assigned by Churchill to personally spy on Wallace. Yeah, and, and so these people uh, were out to get Wallace, and they ran the, the, what, what Paulie called his coup through the Democratic Party bosses, who had tried to isolate uh, Roosevelt from Wallace's supporters throughout mm. 1943 and 1944. And Roosevelt at that point was very sick. And the party bosses approached him several times about getting rid of Wallace. And he had several meetings with them. And in those meetings, he said, uh, he says, look, I like Wallace. Wallace is solid. I want to keep him. He says, but I can't get reelected without you. I'm too weak this time. You guys have got to run the campaign. Oh, wow. And he capitulated uh, to the pressure. I was wondering and, why he did and that. And he supported uh, Wallace. He said, if I were a delegate, hmm. I would vote for Henry Wallace. But he didn't carry out the kind of fight that would have been required right, right. to keep Wallace back on the ticket. Hmm. So Roosevelt supported him. Roosevelt's wife and his children were oh, furious nice. with him for not having fought harder to keep Wallace on the ticket. But the party bosses were all aligned against him, as were all of these other interests. And so when we went into the 44 convention, uh, it, was, it looked like the die was cast against Wallace, that Wallace would be ousted from the ticket. Well, we want to talk about specifically what happened on the floor of the convention then. If you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here. Our guest is Peter Kuznick, a professor of uh, history at uh, American University. We're talking about Henry Wallace, 1944. Okay, the delegates on the floor, as I understand it, were very much supportive of keeping Henry Wallace on the ticket. Is that correct? As were most Americans. Yes. Gallup released a poll on July 20th, 1944, the day that the convention began in steamy Chicago, Chicago Stadium, uh, a poll of potential Democratic voters asking them who they wanted on the ticket as vice president. 65% of potential Democratic voters said they wanted Wallace back on the ticket as vice president. 2% 2% said they wanted Harry Truman. So in this uh, greatest of all democracies, how is Truman going to get the nomination with 2% support over Wallace, who had 65% support? Right. Well, the Good question. party conventions were not exactly democratic. And the uh, bosses had, had tried to control who the delegates were going to be, and they, tried to con- they, they made all these corrupt deals. Uh, to make sure that Wallace would not get the nomination. However, Wallace made the seconding speech for uh, for President Roosevelt on the floor of the convention that night, and the place went wild with a spontaneous de- demonstration that lasted almost an hour. Uh, leading it were people like Hubert Humphrey, Adlai Stevenson, and others who were much more progressive than they were. 
Uh, in the midst of this, uh, uh, Claude Pepper, the senator from Florida, realizes that if he can get to the microphone and get Wallace's name and nomination, that Wallace would sweep the convention, defy the bosses, be back on the ticket as vice president. He starts fighting his way to the front, fighting his way through the crowd. The party bosses see what's happening. Uh, led by uh, Mayor Kelly, Mayor of Chicago, they start racing to the front of the room also, through the crowd, trying to beat Pepper to the front. Uh, and, and Kelly gets there, and, he's, and he demands of Sam Jackson, who's chairing the convention, he says, uh, says, adjourn immediately. This is a fire hazard. Adjourn immediately. Uh, and uh, Jackson says, I have a motion to adjourn. All in favor, say aye. Maybe 5% said aye. All opposed said nay. Everyone booms out nay. Uh, Jackson says, motion carried. The convention adjourned. Pepper was literally five feet from the microphone when this happened. Had Pepper made it five more feet to the microphone, Wallace would have been back on the ticket as vice president. There would likely have been uh, no Cold War. Right. There would certainly have been no atomic bombing in 1945. The history of the world would have been fundamentally, dramatically different. But the meeting was adjourned, uh, and uh, then Jackson later apologized to Pepper and, and, Pepper, and, and said that, that he was under strict orders from Hannigan not to let Wallace be nominated. And uh, Pepper comments in his autobiography, the world was turned topsy-turvy, that the world would have been dramatically different and dramatically better had Wallace gotten the nomination that night. The, Wallace in the first ballot and the second ballot was way ahead anyway, even though they tried to keep the Wallace delegates out the second day when the, meeting, when the convention resumed. But finally, after the second ballot, all the deals kicked in. The bribes were paid. The postmaster general positions, the other patronage positions were turned over. The ambassadorships were dealt out. And finally, with all the corrupt deals being made in the back rooms, Truman finally triumphed. Absolutely amazing. I, I can imagine listeners, all of whom have never heard that story, uh, it, it actually happened that way. You couldn't make it up. Well, I, I, you know, what, I hope what, what, what listeners do is watch the documentary film series that Oliver Stone and I did, The Untold History of the United States, and read our book. The, the big book, the first, volume, first book that came out, The Untold History of the United States, is about 800 pages long. Oh. Then we have a second book called The Concise Untold History of the United States, which is not an abbreviated version. It's a different version based on the documentary scripts. Then we have a third version that just came out, Volume 1 of our Young Readers Edition for middle school students. Uh, and that's going to be four volumes for middle school students. So we're doing everything we can in order to try to reach people yes. with these stories. In fact, my, collab my friendship with Oliver Stone, uh, collaboration with him, actually began, I told him the Wallace story, which he had never heard either. 99% right. of Americans or more didn't know. And we actually agreed that we were going to do a, a, move, a Wallace movie. So I wrote a screenplay for for really? Oliver Stone about Henry Wallace. We never got it made, but uh -huh. we always wanted to, and that's what led to our collaboration around the documentary film series. We were having dinner, and he was scouting locations for his movie Pinkville about the Milai Massacre, oh. yeah. and over dinner he said, Peter, let's do it. Let's finally do a documentary. And it was going to be a one-part 
one-hour documentary about Wallace and the origins of the Cold War and the things we're talking about. Uh, and then when I went to see Oliver two weeks later in New York, now he had the idea for doing a 10-hour, 10-part documentary film series. And uh, it ended up taking us five years between the documentaries, 12 episodes, the 800-page uh, book, and everything else we were doing. So it was uh, a, a life changer. It, it certainly changed both of our lives in, in, in interesting ways. And the documentaries have been airing pretty much everywhere in the world. It would be great for Americans, especially school children. I mean, memory, you know, there's official memory, uh, there's the official narrative of history. The things that are chosen as to what, you know, school children will learn and will not learn is tremendously powerful in terms of what is happening right now. It's not just history. This is taking the future into our own hands as well. We're talking about uh, Henry A. Wallace and the 1944 Democratic Convention. Is it fair to call it a coup? There was, he was apparently like nine seconds away from getting the microphone. Claude Pepper was. Do, was this, can this be called a coup? I mean, that's a pretty strong word to use. Well, that's what the, uh, the perpetrators called it. It wasn't a violent coup. Right. It caused a lot of violence, Jeez. inadvertently. Right. Uh, it... it uh, led to the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, led to the Cold War. It was a nonviolent coup. Yes, like, like a bloodless coup. Violent coup. There have been bloodless coups before, and I'm sure there will be again. And, you know, if you think about Vietnam, it was pictured in the Cold War context. Here was the reality of Vietnam, which I don't know if kids get taught these days what it really was, it was a struggle by the Vietnamese people for independence from the French colonialists. I can't help but believe that Henry Wallace would have supported the independence of the people of Vietnam. And then it, it, it was... It did, as, as did Franklin Roosevelt. Roosevelt spoke out explicitly about refusing to give the Indochina back to the French. Wow. Roosevelt was outspoken in his hatred of colonialism. He talked about what the Brits, Brits had done in Gambia. He said, I visited Gambia. I'd never seen anything like it. He says, for every dollar the Brits have put in there, they've taken $10 out. Uh, Roosevelt had a visceral reaction and, and strongly disagreed with Churchill. One of Churchill's main goals sure. throughout the war was maintaining the British Empire. Of course. And uh, Wallace and, and, and Roosevelt completely disagreed on that. As another thing that would you mentioned how little students know about Vietnam today. Right. I don't know if you saw, but the latest Gallup poll on the subject. Oh, I'm scared. Fifty-one uh, percent yeah. of eighteen to twenty-nine year olds in the United States say the Vietnam War was worth fighting. That Vietnam was not a mistake. Fifty-one uh, percent. It's astounding to me that people have such ignorance, so little understanding of history, so little historical knowledge and memory. And that's, that's done that way on purpose. There's a 50-year a commemoration, official commemoration of the start of the Vietnam War. Backing off Vietnam, of course, I mean, that war went on unbelievably long, and we could talk about that for another hour or so. Mm -hmm. But Henry Wallace, he was Secretary of Commerce. Harry Truman, who was president, uh, who was really into the Cold War, I mean, just he, he was just loving it. He, the whole... 
Truman Doctrine. People should read about the Truman Doctrine. That created the Cold War and just set us up as the big colonial power to beat back uh, any independence movement. So uh, Henry Wallace was removed uh, by President Truman in 1946. Then in 1948, he did something rather interesting. He ran for president himself, Henry Wallace did, in 1948. Tell us about that. Tell us about his run for the presidency in 1948. Where did his support come from, and was he called a commie sympathizer? Uh, Well, by 48, the Cold War had really been institutionalized. Wallace had remained the leading critic of the Cold War in 46, 47, and early 1948. He'd become the editor of the New Republic in the days when the New Republic really? was a very progressive publication. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's not quite, doesn't represent that <clears throat> at no. this point. No. <laughs> uh, but it, it, for a long time it oh, was. Yeah. Long time. And uh, Wallace decided that he was going to run for president, that that would be the way to spread his message, his anti-Cold War message. He uh, was outspoken in condemnation of what you were talking about before the Truman Doctrine, he thought that the hardening of the lines was going to lead to uh, a war between the United States and the Soviet Union. And so he thought the best thing to do would be to run for president on the third-party ticket, the progressive party. Uh, his platform was largely the same as it had been before, anti-Cold War, anti-nuclear arms race, and he was very, very outspoken on, on, on these issues. It looked like he was going to have a lot of support initially, even though the country was changing its views. Uh, but he yeah. still was so popular on, among African Americans, among uh, labor, uh, progressive Americans. But the country was already changing from 1945 to 1948. We see what's going on now. You turn on CNN. And it's one scare after another. Fear. And and the American people today are just very, very frightened. Even measles, whatever it is, it's 24 hours a day. Fear, fear, fear. Crap out of American public. Yep. Well, that was what was going on then. When Truman was going to announce the Truman Doctrine in early 1947, Senator Vandenberg said, you're going to have to scare hell out of the American people to get them to go along with this. The Americans had resisted this Cold War mentality, and Truman did scare hell out of the American people, and he had a lot of other supporters who were doing that, and these people were controlling the media, they were controlling the high offices, they are controlling the State Department during this time. After Wallace was, was out, there was no articulate voice from within who was opposing these Cold War policies. So the American people were, I don't know if they were brainwashed, but they were convinced that it was a very dangerous world, that the Soviets were out to conquer the world, that the United States was vulnerable to the Soviet Union during that time. And Wallace initially had a lot of support, but his support dwindled during the campaign, and he was red-baited viciously. Uh, the Clark Clifford had advised Truman on how to handle Wallace. He said, what we need to do is to discredit him by, first of all, uh, making your policies more progressive. And Truman did adopt many of Wallace's more progressive policies on race, on labor, on social issues. 
not on foreign policy, but on domestic policy. Truman adopted Wallace's policies to try to co-opt them mm-hmm. and to co-opt his supporters. And the second thing that, that uh, Clifford told him was, you shouldn't attack Wallace yourself. Get liberals and progressives to do it. There's a group that we sometimes refer to as Cold War liberals, these hawks from within the uh, Democratic Party. We still see a lot of those types around now. And uh, Hillary Clinton is a good example of that, somebody who's progressive on, on some of the social issues, but very conservative when it comes to foreign policy and very hawkish. Yes. Well, those are the people who went after Wallace. And it was successful mm-hmm. between the, the, the frightened mentality of the American people the brainwashing on foreign policy, the fear of the Soviet Union. As Wallace had said in one of his earlier speeches, he said it's fear. That's fear that drives us. It's a fear the Soviets are afraid of, of Western encirclement. The Americans are afraid of Soviet aggression. You know, and, and, and that was the mentality. And even Wallace was not able to overcome that. Uh, the communists were actively involved in that campaign, probably to a much greater degree than Wallace understood or appreciated, yeah. but he would not have repudiated the communist support. He was, he, he was a, a staunchly opposed to red-baiting in any form. I'm sure. And, and there were a lot of American communists in the 1930s who, you know, that was the only vehicle for talking about uh, uh, economic justice, the only vehicle for taking on racism. Because, the, the, as I understand it, the Democratic Party, uh, there were a lot of Southern Democrats, especially in the Senate, who were blatantly racist, and they were very, very powerful within the Democratic Party. Not so Very mu- powerful. They'd been in office a long time. They controlled many of the committees. Right. Roosevelt was principled, but he was also quite pragmatic. Oh, yes. And Roosevelt yeah. did not want to buck them. Roosevelt did not support the federal anti-lynching legislation. Right. His wife, Eleanor, was much more progressive oh, on, on these kinds of social issues and racial issues than Franklin was. And Franklin was a pragmatic politician. He was saying he could not alienate his southern supporters, right. the southern base of the Democratic Party. It's interesting. There are not very many southern Democrats today. No, that's for sure. They've all, be, they've all become uh, Republicans, for sure. Just a couple of quick ones. Uh, Henry Wallace's ideas on hunger and peace, on, on the relationship of hunger and peace. Is that still applicable today? Yes. Uh, Wallace uh, was more than talk when it came to these things. Wallace developed the brand of hybrid corn yes. that fed most of the world's population. Wallace was a plant geneticist, and his hybrid corn literally fed the world. One of the great ironies that Oliver and I point out is that when Wallace's hybrid, uh, hybrid corn company was sold at the at late uh, 20th century, uh, his, his heirs sold his company for $9 billion dollars. So all these people who thought of Wallace as naive and a communist really misjudged yeah. Henry Wallace. He was neither naive. Uh, he was not a communist. He was not an anti-communist. He, was, he certainly supported a lot of things that communists might support and opposed a lot of other things. He was very much of a Democrat. As Franklin Roosevelt said, no man is more of the American soil than Henry Wallace. And uh, the idea of, of, of hunger as it relates he thought, to he peace. Thought that, he thought that the key, the first thing that you would have to do to have world peace would be to feed the world. Yes. He said, we've got to eliminate hunger. We've got to, that was his big, his big thing. We have to eliminate hunger, and he set out to do it. He was ridiculed for it 
But that was, that was something that he understood and believed in and was committed to and was actually doing with his, his corn. And it doesn't seem like Franklin Roosevelt was concerned about not getting reelected should uh, Wallace stay on the ticket. The chance it's, it's highly likely Roosevelt would have won and Henry Wallace would have become president. What kind, speculate a little bit, what kind of president and foreign policy was America denied by that bloodless coup of 1944? Well, first of all, Wallace thought that he bore special responsibility for the atomic bomb. Wallace was in on the meeting on October 9, 1941, with Vannevar Bush and Franklin Roosevelt, where they agreed to go forward with the atomic bomb project. Wallace was part of the top policy group in the, in the beginning that was overseeing it. This was when Einstein and others were urging Roosevelt to, to begin nuclear research for fear that the Germans were going to develop a bomb right. and use it against us. Um, so in the beginning, Wallace supported that, but later Wallace saw the folly of that. And Wallace was the leading opponent of the nuclear arms race. Wallace in the cabinet, and then afterwards wants, called for abolishing all nuclear weapons. He believed in the complete nuclear disarmament. Mm. He thought that international control should be established immediately. He supported Oppenheimer uh, when Oppenheimer was developing the atchison Lilienthal report before Bernard Baruch sabotaged that at the United Nations. So uh, the first thing about a Wallace presidency was that there would almost certainly have been no atomic bomb dropped on Japan on August 6th and August 9th, 1945. I hope we would have won anyway. Oh, the the bomb bomb was not a major factor in ending the war. Uh, the United States had already been firebombing Japanese cities. Oh, yes. We firebombed over 100 Japanese cities during the war. Destruction of the city, the destruction reached 99.5% in the city of Toyama. 99.5%. Uh, we'd been, we, we burned down Tokyo. Yes. Uh, Just we, needed to cover their ground a little bit. Knew that we could burn down their cities. Yes. And destroy their cities. The so, Japanese leaders no. accepted that. To them, it didn't make a big difference whether it was 200 planes and thousands of bombs or it was one plane and one bomb. Same that was not the difference. Right. What changes the equation in 1945 is the Soviet invasion of Manchuria that begins at midnight on August 8th, the morning of August 9th. And that, because that undermines Japan's military strategy, their Ketsugo military strategy, oh. it undermines their diplomatic strategy, and at that point... Uh, the Japanese over. leaders realized that victory, well, they, they already knew that victory was not possible, but yeah. they realized that, that they decided to surrender to the Americans. They thought they had a better chance of uh, keeping the emperor with the Americans they than right. they did with the Soviets. And so they decided to surrender very quickly to, to the United States before the Soviets took over the Japanese mainland. I got to ask, it, it does seem to me like his, Henry Wallace's uh, uh, visions are applicable today, and the people should look at it and learn about it and, and see, you know, he, he was a visionary. He could see uh, what could work, what could serve the United States and serve the United States well. Thank you so he much. He was a rare visionary. I mean, yes. he saw so far into the future. And, and you know what he could do that almost nobody else has been able to do? What's that? He could see the way and understand the way the world looked through the eyes of our adversaries. And that's what he kept on trying to impress on Truman. 
How do the things that they were doing look to the Soviet Union in 1945 and 1946? The bases encircling the globe, the building up of our nuclear arsenal, stockpile. The, uh, he went through the, the, the whole thing, and, and they try to get uh, Truman to understand that. But very few leaders can do that. And we look at what's going on now between the U.S. and Russia. Again, how does it look to Russia that NATO, <laughs> that the U.S. broke its promises of 19... 90, 1990, and expanded and began expanding NATO to the point where Russia feels encircled. How does it look to Russia that we're trying to break off Ukraine from Russia's immediate sphere of influence? How does it look to Russia you know, that, that the United States is, is, is basically organizing the world against it? I mean, the things that we're doing, whether it's our, our military policies in space, our SDI policy, uh, we could go through a, a lot of stuff we don't have time to, You're right. but we need a Henry Wallace. And if not for those nine seconds where uh, Claude Pepper almost made it to the microphone, boy, would it have been a different world. Thank you so it, much. It would have been different. Yes, and the would. interesting thing, we've talked about the fact that so few Americans know about Henry Wallace. The, the, the single thing that Oliver Stone and I have been attacked on more than any other thing that in our Untold History Project is our depiction of Henry Wallace. Really? There is still wow, so much anger and hatred of Henry Wallace on the part of the hawks in this country and the right-wingers that this is what they, they, they choose to attack us the most for. It's not our criticism of Obama. It's not our treatment <laughs> of Lyndon Johnson. It's not even our treatment of Truman. Amazing. It's our treatment of uh, Henry Wallace, our laudatory glowing treatment of, of Henry Wallace that we get criticized, attacked for. Amazing. Well, I think more people are going to learn about him. Thank you so much. Peter Kuznick, professor of history, co-author of The Untold History of the United States. Thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy <laughs> Alive. The day is blue, there's nothing to do But watch the sad review of life Going
we are keeping democracy alive. Twice a week, every week. Subscribe, don't miss a single one, on the website, Apple Podcast, Spotify, or Stitcher.